So you always want to be prepared to... To set goals. To be really disruptive. Diversity is fundamental. It is just trusting those super strengths. To recover from those failures and, and learn from them. Humility looks like the softest word, but it's kind of the hardest. We ourselves are in beta mode. Life goes on. Sporting Edge, inside the mind of champions. Welcome to the Inside the Mind of Champions podcast. My name is Jeremy Snape. I'm a former England cricketer with a master's degree in sports psychology. Since retiring, I've been fortunate to work with and interview some of the world's most successful thinkers and performers. And I'm passionate about translating their habits and routines into practical strategies to help you become more successful. In each episode, I'll be dissecting a common performance challenge to help you improve your mindset, your leadership, and your team performance. To me, our mindset is the next frontier. So let's find out why. Hello and welcome back to Inside the Mind of Champions. Today we're going inside the mind of a successful corporate leader, author, and coach. It's May Bush. May was brought up in the US, but came to London to take on the role of Chief Operating Officer of the global bank Morgan Stanley. Since retiring from her corporate career, May's re-qualified as a coach and written a great book about how to advance your career. It's called Accelerate, the nine capabilities to achieve career success at any stage. You'll hear all about May's battle with low confidence and some strategies she used to give herself courage and focus. She also shares powerful insights into her leadership style and her transformational coaching. The interview comes from our recent Sporting Edge Members Club event, where our members were asking May questions live. If you'd like to be a part of this ambitious community, then you can activate your free month's membership via sportingedge.com forward slash membership and using the code PODCAST100 in the discount code box. You'll also be able to use all of our micro lessons and inspirational video content in your team meeting. So come and join us. Let's dive straight into the interview where I asked May about her early years because the influence of her parents was crucial in setting her up for success. I feel really fortunate to have had a great family, uh, wonderful parents, a wonderful sister, and a great childhood. Um, We had, I'm thinking about the most formative experiences of that. And the one that really stands out in my mind is I have always thought of myself and I am the child of immigrants. So my parents came over. They have a much more interesting story than I do. I won't tell it here, but the, sh- the short version is that they uh, fled the um, revolution in China in 1949, went to Taiwan, and then took various forms of transportation. <laughs> my mother was on some cargo ship, you know, heading over to America to make a new life. And uh, as a result... Uh, my sister and I were first generation. And that had a big impact because it made us um, both more resilient, but also made us instantly 
outsiders. And uh, we were, uh, I always realized that I didn't, I didn't look like everybody else. When we went home, it was a different kind of environment. We were speaking Chinese, uh, but it also made me a very hard worker. My parents believed in excellence. And uh, one of the things that they also instilled in us was you, you asked, uh, you, you and I have talked about expectations and the role of expectations, but they expected us to get good grades. They expected us to not just get a university education, but also graduate school. Uh, they expected us to be our very best and to always be doing things that would uphold the family name, if you will. Um, so that led to my having, a, okay, the other thing is in the Chinese culture, uh, the, the, the male um, descendants are seen as important. And I guess in many cultures, right, it's the, the family name and all of that. And I always thought of myself, uh, because we were just two girls, not just two girls, but two daughters. And I always thought of myself as being the son of the family. And that, I was very driven. I just worked really hard. I applied for and got to the best school I could get into. I applied for and got into the best company I could get into. I played piano, classical piano. I wanted to do that. And I remember when I was 16, I would be sitting for four hours a day practicing to the point where my little sister would say, mom, can you stop her? Does she have to play scales for two whole hours? <laughs> um, yeah. So I put a lot of pressure on myself to be excellent, to be the best. I'm not sure that that was the best way to go about one's childhood, but that's, that's how it was. And my parents were hugely supportive. They didn't put pressure on me. I put it on myself. It's really interesting how you rose to that expectation and, and feeling that you'd got that point to prove to, you know, you know, dominate, uh, you know, the classroom or, or the music room or whatever it might be. Um, your parents were sort of fueling that and, and supporting that. So, so once you graduated and you started to get into the corporate arena, you, I can almost imagine you as a very single-minded individual that was achieving, you know, all those steps on the ladder for yourself. What, what was it like when you got in alongside other graduates that were bright and, and sort of ambitious and successful in that first, what was the first company that you worked with and what was that sort of experience like? Well, the, the, I was going to say Morgan Stanley because uh, I spent 24 years of my career there. I had a job uh, while I was at uni, uh, but I'm not sure that's really what you're yeah. talking about. So when, when I, um, actually one thing I did learn about, about that first kind of internship job was I was put into a department where there were some uh, more lovely grandmother stage of life ladies, and they were just doing this very menial kind of task in the wire transfer room very, very slowly. And I was so eager. I went in there and did it super fast. And they basically said, please slow down, because you're ruining it for the rest of us. But, uh, so anyway, but when I got to Morgan Stanley, um, I, I, in essence, I was, uh, there were three things. Number one is I felt like a total alien. I felt like I had been, I had no idea what the business world was like. My family is full of doctors, 
government officials, research scientists. And so the business world totally knew. And the second thing is I realized how naive I was. And I just thought if I worked really hard and kept my head down and did excellent work, then that was going to be enough. Uh, because my supportive parents would just give me tons of praise. And when, you know, I had a lot of pats on the head as I was growing up, but that didn't really happen so much. And then the third thing I realized is um, even though the, the view or the stereotype of uh, Asian folks is that we're all really good at math and technical uh, kind of skills, I was okay, I wasn't great. So that was really challenging for me. And what was really my area of interest and strength was the people side. So uh, I was fascinated by, by people. And I, um, so I struggled in the beginning, but then that people interest really helped, uh, helped me later. So how, how did you sort of build your career through those promotions? Did you have a, a sort of a dream goal of where you wanted to get to and sort of aimed for that? Or did you take lots of random sort of sideways projects and, and just sort of scrapped your way through until it made sense later? Yeah, so I, um, that's such a great question, Jeremy, because my goal was always whatever seniority level I was at, plus one. So uh, as a result, I wasn't, ever satisfied. <laughs> and I was just uh, putting my head down to try and figure out how to get those promotions. So the first few were pretty easy because in the very beginning, people are looking, you're in, and you're in a big program. In my case, there's pastoral care, I would call it, right? They're, they're looking out for you. They're assigning you on projects. They're giving you feedback. And so for the first two promotions, it was no problem. But then I started to get to the point where it wasn't quite so simple to get a promotion. It wasn't just about your skills and capabilities and what you delivered. All these qualitative factors came into play. And so that's where uh, I, I missed a couple of promotions. I was no longer on this fast track. And that was really humbling. And that's where I really needed to figure out how the, the whole system worked and uh, figure out how I was going to also overcome. I was very shy in, in, this, in this new environment. I was never shy as a kid and I'm not shy now, but during those years, it was as though I uh, just became super cautious and, and closed down a bit. I wasn't really bringing my whole self to the table because I was unsure of what was the right way to be and, and how to, how to um, uh, and I was afraid to make mistakes. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because, you know, I've got this image in my head of the, you know, you living life in the fast lane, doing your junior school and your, your university and your grad school and whatever, getting straight into Morgan Stanley and starting to skip through past the older ladies who were taking their time, you know, up through these promotions. They weren't at Morgan Stanley. They were somewhere else. They were somewhere else. And, the then, regional bank. <laughs> and then you, um, and then you hit a brick wall and you, you, you know, it, it doesn't work out the way you see it. And you see this a lot with talented athletes, you know, there's the promotion through the age groups, there's the turning pro. And then all of a sudden it's a very different 
sort of context and you almost have to reinvent yourself. So what, what was that process like for you? You were saying that you'd almost lost that uh, sharp edge or that confidence. You know, how, how yeah. did you metabolize that and turn yourself into something, somebody that could go through those next few steps and levels? Yeah. So in a way, I spent most of my career trying to become my true self again. And uh, one of the things that I really had to work on was my self-confidence and my self-esteem. Now, I would never have admitted that back in the day. But the truth was, I had really lost confidence in myself because the yardsticks were different. And what I, I, there was a point in time where I literally lost my voice. Uh, you know, I told you I was shy, so I wasn't speaking up. I was tentative. And in one meeting, uh, I was already, uh, uh, I guess, maybe mid to, um, yeah, in the middle of my career. I was an executive director, so maybe slightly above middle. And we had this morning meeting in capital markets. And I dreaded this meeting because it was among my peers. And I, that was my worst audience. I felt like I was being judged by them constantly. Now they probably weren't paying any attention to me whatsoever. And they were thinking about their own careers, but I felt really judged. And that was my worst venue. And I was in, we took turns to present something we were working on with a client. So it was my turn. And I started talking and all of a sudden, I felt like everybody was watching me. Of course they were, they were just paying attention, right? But to me, it was, they were all watching and judging me. And I started speaking slower and slower and slow. And all of a sudden I couldn't speak anymore. And my, uh, the head of the group was sitting across from me. And, and so now everybody really was looking at me. And she said, why don't we conclude our meeting for today? And so everybody left. And she uh, then said, May, uh, are you okay? And I, all I could think of was to blurt out what was true, but uh, I, was, I was pregnant with my first child and I wasn't gonna tell them <laughs> until I absolutely had to. So I thought oh, I could play this card. To this day, I'm, I don't think it really was because of whatever hormones or whatever, but I, I said, yeah, well, um, I'm expecting in three months, I was gonna tell you that, sorry, not in three months, I'm three months pregnant. I was going to tell you and she goes, oh, Oh, well, that explains everything. No worries. But I knew in my heart that it was something more deep. It was my confidence. And uh, would you like me to share how I got out of that? Definitely. Oh, I thought you were going to say no. We move on to something. <laughs> Jeremy, you're so great. Okay. So I went home. I was very upset. And uh, my husband said to me, you know, you are just as good as any of those guys. And it was mostly guys around the table. And you deserve to have all of this confidence. And I'm crying, I'm sobbing, blah, blah, blah. And so what he suggested, what he said, why don't you change all that negative self-talk into something positive? By the way, I should say, because this is yours, the sporting edge. My husband is a basketball coach. So he coaches, um, he's coached some GB women's basketball and he has a, a club team and um, they've won the national championship three years in a row. He's been coach of the year, all of that. So he's got the real sporting edge <laughs> credentials. 
And he, uh, so I think he was borrowing from that. And, and so we, he created for me and, and with me a mantra. And it was four lines that he made me say out loud and repeat to myself until he was satisfied that I was saying it with confidence. And for the next, it took me two years to totally get this uh, out of my out of my system. But it was started to work already after three to six months. But I would say this mantra, I must have said it a hundred times a day in the beginning. It just every <laughs> I'm going to the to the um, in America, we call it to the ladies room here. I guess we go, go to the loo. Right. And uh, just to say it to myself, make sure nobody was watching and say it to myself. I use some NLP neuro linguistic programming to, you know, capture it as a feeling. But uh, I'd be running on the treadmill and I'd be saying it to myself. Uh, yeah. And that's what really was it? what was it? Come on. What's the mantra? We, we all want to know. What's the mantra that transforms? Okay, all right. So I'm going to share it now. Okay, here it is. Hi, I'm May Bush. I'm very good at my job. I'm as good as any of them and better than most. I'm calm, cool, and confident, and I know what I'm talking about. That was my mantra. Well, I'm sure if we could give you a, a round of applause, that would be definite. Uh, you know, maybe even get some icons on the screen. But that's brilliant, isn't it? And, and it's interesting that negative, well, a couple of things from my side on that. Firstly, the fact that you had the, the sort of excuse ready, which obviously you were pregnant. So it's a very I good don't thing. recommend getting pregnant uh, just no, so but, you can say but this. But I'm thinking from a from a cricketing point of view, you know, if, if ever I was out, you know, to a I, I knew in my own head that it was my fault that I'd thought the wrong thing before the bowler ran up. Yeah. But the players would always say, oh, did that spin or did it hit a funny pit on, part on the pitch or did it keep low or whatever? And you'd always say, oh, yeah, 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 there was something funny going on. When actually, you know. So I think the first thing for me, which is great and, and inspirational, actually, is that you saw that in yourself. And actually, even though you played the, you know, the card publicly, internally, you wanted to do something about it. And then I think starting to reprogram that negative self-talk. So rather yeah. than being a critic, it actually becomes a coach, you know, and, yes. and all of those things that you've just said in that beautifully delivered mantra. Well, I'm not surprised it's beautiful if you were practicing it a hundred times a day, but. Uh, uh, yeah, said I, I've said this literally thousands of times. But it, but it becomes a truth, doesn't it? And, and there's no reason for you not to be confident. And actually, most of the other men in that room may be in smart suits, but they're probably having the same fears and insecurities themselves, but they just don't present themselves. So I think, you know, that's a that's a brilliant story. And um, so, so what about when you had to take some risks and take on these bigger roles? How did you get the confidence and the, you know, the, the sort of courage to go for those bigger roles? So uh, I'm, I'm smiling because the role that took me from New York to London was one that I turned down. And uh, again, my husband. So yes, you, you asked me about being supported. My family first, my, my nuclear family, family first, and then my husband. I married really well. <laughs> That's another tip. <laughs> if you're going to marry, marry well. Marry a coach, yeah. Yeah, and um, so uh, they said, May, we'd like to... Um, we'd like to send you to London to build this business for us. And I said, oh, you know, I, I had just had my third 
child. Uh, she wasn't even one yet. My husband had a job. Uh, he was coaching in New York City high schools and they, they won a championship. You know, he was doing very well. And I said, no, I'm, yeah, I, I can't uproot my whole family. And uh, I, I actually said, you know what? Thanks for, for giving me the opportunity, but I, I, I've got to say no. So I go home. I tell my husband, Len, I said, yeah, you know, they offered me this thing, but I said no, because obviously he said, what? You said no? Go back over there and tell them you want to do it. And he said, I'm getting tired of trying to, he also taught special education and he said, I'm just getting tired of it. The principal's leaving and he was a great guy and it's just not going to be the same go back and tell them. So I had to sheepishly go back and tell the big boss, you know, that job thing, you know, I, I yes, I do want to do it. <laughs> so sometimes it's a little bit like uh, being up in that plane where you're doing the, the parachute jump thing, which I've never done. I'm afraid to do that. So maybe I'll have to conquer that fear too. But uh, then somebody has to just kind of shove you out the, out the door there. So that's kind of what happened what happened there. Uh, but even before that, though, I was someone who I, I, I'm motivated by challenge. So I didn't want to be a banker. I don't really love finance or capital markets. I mean, today, I don't even read the FT really, but it, you know, it just doesn't make that big a difference to me. I'm really interested in the people. And, uh, but being motivated by challenge, I would always go for the hardest most challenging thing, and then see how I could make it work. And um, as a result, every two or three years in my 24 years, I would get bored and I would be looking for a new challenge. And fortunately, most of them came my way. I never had to advocate for a particular role, which is really interesting because I can't explain then how I got those roles other than to say, uh, if you are doing excellent work, you are adding value, you're continuing to learn, grow, and develop yourself on the one hand, and you develop a profile. Some people call it personal brand, which sounds a little marketing speak, but just a, a high enough profile that, that people who are looking for someone to fill roles sees you, knows what you're capable of. So it's that kind of visibility that really matters. And then those two things uh, can put you into the running. Now, if you don't have that kind of profile, you, you will need to put yourself forward. But that always feels uh, a little bit self-promoting-ish. But if I had to do that, I would have done that. Yet for me, I was fortunate enough that um, I, I was being considered. Oh, Jeremy, I got to tell you this part. Sorry, you were going to ask me a different question, but I just realized, you know, you're making me think through this. Mm. It's not like I run around thinking about my career all the time. I really don't. So can, can I just share this one story, Jeremy? Yeah. Oh, okay, great. So uh, I think it all started happening for me when my, we, we had a new global head of capital markets. He'd come from another firm. He didn't know any of us. And we all thought we were going to be fired immediately, which he didn't do, but he was watching to see, you know, what kind of team does he have? And out of sheer luck, uh, I had a big client pitch 
that we were doing to a, for a company that had never done business with us before. My client, the treasurer, was going to bring his big boss, the CFO. So I thought, wow, I can't just show up by myself. I need to bring my big boss. So I went to this new global head of capital markets and I said, uh, Waleed, would you be willing to fly to Houston with me to do this pitch? And he said, of course. And it was a you know, long flight from New York. We get there. Uh, I had prepared you know, massively and we get to the meeting and it goes really quite well. I go back to the airport in my taxi. He goes to another meeting in his car and I get a phone call and I can see it's my big boss. And I go, oh my gosh, I'm about to be fired. I always thought I was inches away from being fired. You see the negative mindset going on here, Jeremy. So I pick up the phone. I say, hello, please don't fire me. And he said, May, I just want to tell you that that was the best client meeting I have ever been to. And if I were a client, I would want you as my banker. Be good. Click. He always ended his calls with be good. Um, And since that moment, if I was looking back or when I look back, I realized that that was a pivotal moment. Having him see me in action, because you remember, I was that scared, mousy, not talking for my peers internally. So that internally was my worst setting. My best setting was with my clients. I wasn't smart enough. I was too naive to realize that if I just started inviting senior people, they would see me at my best. But this, I just had to invite somebody senior. He saw me at my best. And after that, I started to get those opportunities. So that's how it happened. Brilliant. Well, I think there's a few things there. And uh, I think firstly, you know, recognizing each other's good work is something that we don't under, you know, we don't, we underestimate the impact it has on people, don't we, when we say thank you or well done. And, and that's yes. something that, that your boss did in that um, you know, yes. quick phone call. That was, that was a transformational moment for you, but a very simple thing for him to do, you know, as he's getting in his car to get to the next meeting. So that, that's one insight that I took from that. But then the other point when we sort of rewind a little bit was you you were focused on delivering excellence and showcasing, you know, doing a great job across the various stakeholders where the other mindset could be sort of that feeling of injustice that I can't believe I've not been promoted. And how did that person get that job? And all your energy becomes very external and sort of, you know, about the outcomes. Whereas if you're just focused on your own skills, your own impact, your own relationships, helping people and delivering excellence everywhere, you'll get seen and you'll get promoted. And, and that's, you know, that, that mindset, again, sounds like it's been part of your success. I, I think you're right. And I'm so glad that this group is so focused on mindset because it's really the most important thing. It, it truly is. And, uh, it, you know, I, I, if I just stopped sab- self-sabotaging <laughs> the wrong mindset, my career would have gone even more smoothly and more quickly. Uh, Just as an aside, though, uh, Jeremy, I have to confess that I did go through that stage of going, why is so-and-so getting promoted and not me? So I I did have that, too. (laughs) But you have to go past that. (laughs) Don't don't dwell there too long. No. no. So so when you moved over to the UK, you've obviously got another completely different culture to try and yeah. Uh, navigate and, and work out the rules of the game. How, how did you go about that? And what did you learn about working internationally that bolstered your, your skill set? 
Yeah. So first, I highly recommend working in a different culture and even a different geography if you can do it. You know, I, I, clearly not everyone's uh, family is going to say, yes, why, yes, let's move 3,000 miles away. Uh, having done that, though, I came to realize that um, it's not just language, because I thought, oh, England, UK, they speak English. How different could it be? Well, as they, what's the saying? Uh, the Americans and the British are uh, two people separated by a common language or something like that. And uh, it, yeah, so one of the things I realized is I needed a guide or a, a mentor, somebody who could help me understand and not make unnecessary mistakes in this new culture. And I actually had two people from my UK team. So I was coming in to run all of EMEA, Europe, Middle East and Africa. And so my UK team, they were, I never, I decided I, I came to realize that I couldn't even send an email to a client in the UK without running it by them first in case I had inadvertently said something the wrong way. And I was clued into that when I came back, I went to a, a meeting with them, my UK team, and I, we came back and in the cab, I'm like, wow, well, that was a great meeting, Mike. He goes, oh yeah, do you think so? I said, yeah. I mean, they said they were interested. And he goes, no, 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 no. When somebody, when a British client says they're interested, that means there's no way they would support your idea in public. <laughs> so I learned that interesting, interested means, mm. and, um, and then I said, well, what that, but then he said, it was fine. He goes, oh, no, 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 no. Fine is barely passable. So uh, yeah, I, I, realized that I had no clue what was going on. And that's why the I knew. Nuances of, uh, of uh, language and leadership. Like, so you spoke, you spoke a little while ago about sort of losing that confidence in the middle of your career. But then, of course, you've got to take on this, uh, you know, statesman-like role or leadership position. How did you define your leadership style? And, and how would you describe what that yeah. was when you were at the peak of your career? Yeah. Yeah. Um, by the way, just as an aside, everybody, I still think I'm at the peak of my career. So, <laughs> or heading towards, sorry, I'm still heading towards the peak of my career. The peak of your corporate career. Yes. Multiple peaks. That's it. Uh, so leadership style, um, there were two, two ways in which uh, my leadership style came about. One was the influence of my parents and my father had this concept of the big self and the small self. And the big self is, well, I'll start with the small self. That's simpler. The small self is you and your parochial interests. So, you know, what's good for me, what's in it for me type of thing. But the big self is doing what is the right thing for the overall team or the organization, even if it is not the optimal thing for your small self. Clearly, there are going to be times when you have to look after your small self. But in uh, leading, it's really about that, that big self and supporting the team, uh, helping them to grow and be their best. So that was important. And then my mom, she worked in um, Harlem. 
She was a doctor, a pediatrician, but she chose to work in public health. So this was a, a setting that was very challenging and not a lot of people wanted to work there. But she did. And we, she brought us, my sister and I, to come and visit. And I saw how she knew everybody. She talked to all the people from the people that cleaned the, uh, the physical location all the way to her big boss. And she basically demonstrated and role modeled that it's so important to treat everyone with respect because human beings, we have a real need to be seen and heard, seen, heard, and respected. So that was something that I've always taken with me. And uh, I've also seen people not do that. And if anybody's ever mean to my, my personal assistant or a secretary, they are on my blacklist because that really shows who they truly are. So those were formative for me. And then the second way um, that I developed my own style of leadership was by observing others and taking bits of what I really admired and liked about what they did and then make it my own because you can't just copy somebody else. Like if I copied exactly what you said, Jeremy, and did exactly what you said, it wouldn't sound right from me and, and vice versa. So you have to uh, make it your own. And just as an example, that big boss, uh, he had this amazing way of making everyone feel really good. And it was the, the thing I remember best is the way he just walked out onto the trading floor and it just, you just knew he had arrived and he would come in and, and say, Hey, how are you? Shake hands. Or back then we were allowed to pat people on the back. You know, maybe now it's the no touch version, the, uh, the um, Air 5 or something like that. But I just loved the way he just sailed into a room and made everybody feel seen, heard, and welcomed. And so that's one of the things that I, I adopted, my own version of it, of course. But so th that's just an example. Brilliant. And, and now you've moved into sort of coaching and, and leading groups. What, what, what inspired you to get into coaching yourself? What was it the, about the coaching style that you found so intriguing? So uh, this is again, a, a, um, funny and a little bit <laughs> embarrassing story. So uh, by this time I'd been in investment banking for 24 years and maybe a little bit of, of hubris had rubbed off on me. And I remember when I left, I, I, I wanted to do something uh, that was leaning into my, my interest in people and what made them tick and what makes certain groups more successful than others. And I also love to do speaking. So I was trying to figure, and I love to write too. So I was trying to figure out something where I could uh, lean into all those strengths and really enjoy myself. And so one of my uh, friends said, you know, May, why don't you train as a coach? You know, I think you'd be a good coach. And I said, no, 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 no. I get coached. I don't coach. Like, is that the most arrogant thing you ever heard of? I'm, I'm embarrassed just saying it um, because now I love coaching. Right? So, and then my, my coach said, you know, may I really think you should give this coaching training a go at a minimum. It'll, it'll uh, help you to be a better person. <laughs> and uh, which is, which it has. And if nothing else, it'll just give you a, a platform to, to stand on. So I did, I went in and, and she also said, well, what else are you doing really? And so I went and got my coaching credential and I discovered that first, 
being a coach is not the same as being a mentor. And just because you, you feel like, as I did, oh yeah, I've been mentoring all these people, coaching, it'll be like falling off a log. I'm a natural, blah, blah. Well, no, it's different. You, you need to, as my husband says, you need to know stuff <laughs> and you need to practice it. So that's how I became a coach. And I discovered that I just love to help people. And one of the joys of coaching is to watch somebody grow and blossom right before your eyes. Either, um, you know, it, my clients, they get an aha every time we meet that somehow one of my, my strengths to be able to help people in that way. And then I, I just love that. And then over time you do, well, you know, this Jeremy, you just see them become the best version of themselves or, or on the way toward that, because we're always growing. We're never landing on being the best of all time forever. We're always raising the bar. So what, what do you think are the transformational tools of a coach then? You know, what, what do you actually practically do, uh, you know, for your clients that can help them to change perspective or, or give them more courage yeah. to take some risks? Yeah. I, I think with each client, it's going to be something a little bit different. But I have found that uh, confidence and mindset, again, are oftentimes and almost always at the root of a lot of these things, because we are all confident in certain settings and not confident in others. Um, so for me, um, it, there's something very basic that I have to say, because otherwise you can't be the best coach, which is before you get in the room or on the Zoom with your client, and this holds true if you have people reporting to you, team members, wh whoever you're, you're wanting to help, you need to take care of all your needs first. So it's just making sure you've eaten, you've hydrated, you're uh, not distracted anymore by some task. And yes, even using the loo, whatever it is, you know, you gotta be totally ready to focus. So then when you get in the room, to me, the most important thing is that I am completely there for that person. And I am almost mind melding with them because I've taken everything, I've taken care of everything else. And this time is for them. So what I often do is I will agree with them. I'll say, uh, I'll be looking at my phone. So you have to explain why you're doing that because it's obviously very uncoach-like to be looking at your phone. So I will set a timer. So I'm going to set a timer so the, for 10 minutes before the end of the session, just so that we know we've got 10 minutes to wrap up. Sometimes I make it five, it depends. And they go, okay, great. And then, then we can really concentrate. And then when we're in the coaching session, uh, I have already, so great coaching starts before you even get in the room, which is agreed uh, what, is, um, what is success from their standpoint and, and good contracting upfront. So that's a key part of coaching, because if you've already agreed up front and gotten permission to do certain things, then you won't hesitate as a coach to do those things. And what are those things? Well, number one is I get permission to challenge the person. So I'm going to hold up a mirror and I'm going to challenge you on things. Is that OK? Do I have permission to do that? And uh, and and they will invariably say yes. 
But even though I know they're invariably going to say yes, it's important that I've contracted with them that that's okay. So if you're coaching a team, I think it's the same thing, you know, coaching a sports team. Um, And then uh, secondly, it is to uh, explain to them that I'm not there to solve their problem. I'm there to help them find their own solutions because I start from the standpoint that that person creates all, uh, has all of the resourcefulness in order to, um, to, to solve their own issues. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean I'm just going to say, what do you think? Cause that's so annoying. So I also bring in uh, things that I know and stories and so forth, but only if it serves that person. Yeah. And I think, I think great questions, you know, give people a different reference point because we get so used to walking the same path. Yes. In our stories don't we and we say oh a happened then b then c then can you believe d happened but i think great coaches say well what happened after c was there another path you could have taken and then when people start to have that real realization that there were other options available then they start to take a bit more you know accountability for their choices and behavior and then that's where it begins for me absolutely that's- we're going to come to some questions from the group in a second i've just got one more i was working with a a group this morning, um, I think I mentioned that the women's uh, network of a client and, and one of the ladies asked at the end, how would you define success? And I thought it was a brilliant question because I'd been presenting a lot of insights around leadership positions and, you know, getting to the top of your career. But it was almost a more philosophical question, which I think I've actually mellowed on a little bit as well myself through the pandemic that, you know, should we have this <clears throat> you know, idea that the wolves are chasing us and we're constantly dissatisfied with not being at the next level? Or, or is success actually more to do with contentment and freedom in your own mind? I don't know. I'd just be interested in your thoughts. Yeah. So on, on success, um, I think every one of us has our own definitions and we have to create our own definitions. And those definitions can change over time. And it is definitely not uh, how how quickly you can run up the gerbil or, or spin around the gerbil track. Uh, I discovered that because those were some of my definitions of success. So to me, it's it's really about looking at your whole life and realizing that your career is part of your whole life, uh, an important part, a big part in many of our cases. And you want to think about longevity, especially these days. We're all going to be uh, expected to, or, or many of us will need to, and some many of us will want to work for a good long time. And uh, so it's not about being in a hurry necessarily to get that next step. And especially not in a hurry to do the things that society tells us, or the org structure tells us is successful. So you have to feel successful in your own uh, own mind and be really confident about that and comfortable with that. And it reminds me, I don't know, Jeremy, is there a game of life board game in the UK? Cause in America, there's a game called the game of life and it's by this company, Milton Bradley. It's a really old game, but I think it's still being played. No, doesn't, I don't know of it, but doesn't um, ring a bell. Well, the, what you need to know about the game of life, according to the, the board game is that the, to win, you write down before the game starts. So each player gets a little sheet and it's got a heart. So love, a star for fame, 
and a dollar sign for money, in this case, pound sign. So you have 60 points to allocate. So whoever gets to 60 first wins, but it's getting to 60 in the sum of those three areas. So if you choose, you can choose to put all 60 on the dollars. You can put, decide 20, 20, 20. You can decide any combination that adds up to 60. And that's what I think is the best way to think about success. Mm-hmm. It's the whole life and it's up to you to decide how many points is a winning set of points. So massive thanks to May Bush for that fascinating insight into her career and her life. I love that mantra, the big self and the little self, and her approach to coaching, which has helped so many people. I know she absolutely loves it too. I'll add a link in the show notes to May's website so that you can follow her work and access her book and also her masterclass. Please do forward this show link to anyone that you think might be inspired or helped by this episode. We've got a great community building around the world and thanks so much to everyone for tuning in. Remember, you can drop me a note through to hello at sportingedge.com if you've got any feedback or if I can help you or your company in any way. I've got some really interesting keynote speech requests coming in for the back end of 2022. So I look forward to hearing from you if there's anything you'd like me to present or facilitate with your team. So let's keep making decisions through the lens of our big self. And until next time, good luck. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. Connect with Jeremy's LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram links in today's show notes to receive the latest insights from his work. If you'd like to get access to Sporting Edge's digital library or book Jeremy for a conference speech or webinar, then please visit www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com. 